Okay, I'm going to pray again, just because I feel like I need it. I loved listening to your discussion. Once again, I was totally blessed. I mean, I don't hear everything you're saying. I just hear little pieces, but it was a huge blessing. Lord, we just come before you um, once again, uh, asking for your blessing upon your word. Lord, that you would, um, Lord, help it to not return void as you have promised, that it would accomplish all that you are sending it forth, that by your grace you would open our minds to, to grapple maybe a little more fully tonight with just the majesty and the beauty and the glory of who you are and what you have done for us. God, help us not be complacent about what you have done in reconciling us to you, Lord, and making a way for us to be righteous. Thank you, thank you for your gift. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk about what we hear a lot today in people that we interact with in our culture. Some of the phrases. I'm a good person, so I'm going to go to heaven. How could a loving God create a place of torment for his enemies? How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Why would God let bad things happen, especially to me? I don't deserve this. Do any of those sound familiar? Maybe those have been some of your thoughts before, even if you haven't articulated them. The problem and what causes those kinds of thoughts and questions and evaluations is that many, many people have a secular mindset. What a secular mindset does is it begins with man. Man is the basic reality in universe, and all the problems are because things don't fit with man's rights, man's needs, man's expectations. A biblical mindset is it doesn't just include God, okay, in the universe and say that the Bible's true because there are people that, that do that. A biblical mindset says God is the basic reality in the universe. He is the center of all our thinking. And a biblical mindset says God has the basic right as creator that uh, goals that fit with his perfect nature and character are his right and should be what our goals are. And it moves from here, from God being the center, everything is around him, and it interprets everything with God as the measure, what fits with his plan, his will, and his desire. So you see, the beginning point is completely different. And what we're hoping to happen as we go through the, the word in any point, but certainly in Romans, is that we are going to be developing a biblical mindset. Um, this is why so many people question hell, and they see that the punishment doesn't fit what seems to be right, because they're starting with a man-centered mindset. They think man is the measure, or their own perspective is the measure, and not God in his word. And we've seen that God's goal, we've been seeing this over and over in Romans, is to display his glory, his many perfections, his character, and his name. God possesses all his characteristics, all his perfections. We're going to call them perfections because that's what they are when they refer to God because they're all defined by him and they are perfect. All his perfections, he possesses them all perfectly at all times. 
and his goal is for his glory to be seen and displayed. So let's do a quick review. So far in Romans, we saw in chapter 1 that God has made himself known to man, and man has rejected God. We have exchanged God's glory for lies. Therefore, God must demonstrate both his holiness and his justice by responding with wrath towards sin. God's wrath plays out, we saw in Romans 1 starting 18, as God giving men what they desire. He gives them what they choose. Because God is creator, Genesis 1.1, say that for me, ladies. No, in... <laughs> wow, it's been a long day. I heard someone say Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. <laughs> Let's say the verse together. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. There's a reason that's the first verse in the Bible. Teaching my grandson that verse because if you believe that, the rest of the Bible is easy. It begins with God, it's through God, it ends with God. But because he's creator, we're accountable to him. Payment for just one sin is death. We saw that in Genesis. Even though physical death didn't happen immediately, one sin brought about death. And last week, we ended with the truth after we went through that whole dark passage all the way through into, uh, into chapter 3 with no one righteous. The whole world is accountable to God. That's where we ended. So while God is holy, righteous, and just, he is also loving, gracious, and merciful. Remember all his characteristics at all times. So that presents a dilemma. How can a holy, just God who must pour out wrath to be true to his character have to pour out wrath over sin? How can this holy, just God forgive sinners? How can he be at the same time loving, gracious, and merciful? Proverbs seventeen fifteen on your homework said, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. So acquitting the guilty, how does God do that? Because raise your hand if you've even had one sin in your life. Exactly. All have sinned, and all are accountable to God. So what do we deserve? Wrath, death, part of his wrath, exactly. So how can God stay true to his character and forgive sinners? And that brings us to our lesson tonight, which is the heart of Romans. It's the heart of the gospel. It's heart of the, the heart of the whole Bible. So I want to start with the problem of forgiveness. Um, a lot of this material I got from a book, I meant to bring it tonight, um, On the Cross by John Stott. It's an amazing book if you ever want to spend a lot of time just delving into all the aspects of the cross. Uh, a very dear friend of mine gave it to me many years ago, and it's just very, very rich. I think it's John Stott, and uh, I think it's The Cross of Christ. I don't know if that's the exact title, but it's by John Stott. So let's talk about the problem of forgiveness. Why should our forgiveness depend on Christ's death? Why doesn't God just forgive us? He expects us to just forgive people, correct? The problem with God's forgiveness is that there's a collision between divine perfection and human rebellion. God is love, but he is holy love. When we sin, we're rebelling against the authority and the love of God. 
The essence of sin is really hostility towards God. When David was confronted with his sin, he said to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, he had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba. But what did he say? At the end of the day, the truth is it's against God that we have sinned. So um, here is our first truth for tonight. God's holiness exposes sin and God's wrath opposes sin. God's holiness exposes sin and God's wrath opposes sin. Sin cannot approach God. God cannot tolerate sin. There's all kinds of metaphors in scripture to describe this this difference there. Uh, Height, God is so much higher than us. Distance, light, fire, vomiting out of your mouth. All of those are metaphors that you see about God not being able to tolerate sin. We can only appreciate having access to God if we fully understand our inaccessibility to him and our sin. And that's what Paul has been doing in this first part of Romans, how we cannot approach God because of our sin. Now, why, why is this an issue for us? John Stott says, it's partly because sin doesn't provoke our own wrath that we don't believe it provokes the wrath of God. I thought that was very insightful. It's partly because sin doesn't provoke our own wrath. At least our own sin doesn't. We can look at child abusers, and we, it can provoke some wrath, right? Or someone hurts one of our kids. Oh, yeah, you got some wrath. But when you look at your own sin, it doesn't, you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily um, repelled by it and want to vomit yourself out, basically. Now, you might every now and then with certain sins, but we have a tendency to overlook our sin. We must understand the gravity of sin and the majesty of God to fully understand what happened at the cross. We have to understand the gravity of sin and the majesty of God to fully understand what happened at the cross, which is really a lot of what Paul is spending time doing. Before the holy God can forgive us, some kind of satisfaction or payment is necessary. So what is the solution to the great dilemma? How does God demonstrate and uphold his glory? And so that brings us to the beginning of our passage tonight, verse 21. We've just read, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Through the law we become conscious of sin. And he just said everyone's accountable to God. And then we get this glorious transition at 21 I have it circled and with my other Bible I have hallelujah on there but now that's something you want to memorize but now ladies I mean if you ever want to have something to hang on to you can just stop right there but now and now we're going to go forward hallelujah but now something's changed Paul has just laid the foundation but what has changed a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Okay, so we see that there's a change, but now, hallelujah, man on his own is a loser, accountable to God, but God, under God's wrath, but God has a plan before the foundation of the world, and it was even prophesied in Genesis 3 at the occasion of the first sin. 
So what is this verse? And there's just so many verses that are so rich in this passage. So it says, a righteousness from God has been revealed. This righteousness means in accord with God's perfect standard. God defines righteousness. It's from God. It's outside of ourselves. It's apart from the law. There's no human work involved. And the law and prophets testify. It's always been the plan. This is not plan B. It's always been the plan. It's always been alluded to and spoken throughout the Old Testament. The law speaks generally to the first five books of the Old Testament, and then the, re the rest is the prophets. There's some that are called the writings, but it's pretty much the body of the Old Testament scripture is what he's saying. So at the cross, we see this principle. Got this from John Stott, and I love this. Divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. This is what God did. Divine At the cross, we see divine self-satisfaction, payment for sin, had to satisfy God's holiness, his justice, and his wrath. So divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. I'm going to walk you through that a little bit. The concept of substitution is at the heart of both sin and salvation. And let's look at this. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. I thought that was very concise and very profound. That substitution is at the heart of both sin and salvation. That's why in Romans 1, 3, and 4, when Paul did his introduction, he gave a Christology about Christ being God and man. That's very significant. God gives pictures, and we'll talk in a minute about why he had to be the God-man, but God gave pictures throughout the Old Testament of this, okay, of what he was going to one day do. Let's think about this. We talk about substitution. Adam and Eve sinned. They were naked. They were shamed. They hid from God. They tried to make fig leaves. They did their own effort. The fig leaves were inadequate. So it says God clothed them with animal skins. Now, it doesn't say that God killed an animal, but the implication is he killed an innocent animal to cover their sin and shame. So there was substitution. Someone else or something else died for them. In the Old Testament, in the sacrifices, starting with the Passover, the, the death angel was coming, going to kill the firstborn. The innocent lamb had to be killed. The blood put over as a covering. And it covered them and protected them from the death angel, an innocent substitute. In Leviticus 17.11, God said, talking about blood, I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. Okay? So we see that there's this picture and then you have all the other sacrifices you know constantly in the old testament the innocent dies to cover our temporary put off as a picture of what god was going to do one day in jesus christ okay so let's let's keep going so we start with 21 but now a righteousness and remember we've talked a lot about righteousness how none is righteous okay a righteousness from god apart from the law has been known to which the law and prophets testify this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him a sacrifice of atonement, and the ESV, I think, says propitiation. Does anybody have that? I wish I had put that on your homework. It's a better word, propitiation, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So there's a lot there, okay? So let's talk about this. Um, the righteousness has been made known. It comes through faith. That is the channel. Faith is the channel of receiving this righteousness. It's in Jesus. He is the object of our faith, and it's to all. It's a universal offer of righteousness, and belief goes along with channel uh, with faith. It's the channel. So we have faith. We have belief. We have it's for everyone, and it's offered. And it says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. When I sin, I choose something other than God and diminish his glory. Okay? So what that means, I want to talk about this for a minute. And we're all famous with Romans 3.23. Um, but it goes right into, it's not the end of the sentence, 24. And we're going to get to that in a second. But let's talk about all have sinned and fall short the glory of God. That fall short means lack. One of the, the ways that is translated is lack. To sin, and you know how we've talked about everything begins with God, it's through him, it's for his glory. We've talked a lot in here about God's glory and how God deserves glory and how sin is really taking God's glory from him. So to sin is to take away from God what is his own, to steal from him and to dishonor him. The best exposition of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, is Romans 1.23. Do you remember what we read in Romans 1.23? Suppressing the truth about God, they exchanged, what did they exchange? The glory of God for images. The truth, yeah, denied the truth, and they made this exchange. We've taken, John Piper says, we've taken our greatest treasure and traded it for a bowl of stew like Esau. When we sin, that's the deal we're making. He had the whole inheritance, he had the birthright, and at that moment, his flesh wanted that, and he traded it. And that's exactly what we do when we sin. We give the glory of God two seconds worth of our attention, even as believers, ladies, maybe on Sunday, or we do our devotion, and then we can't wait to get back to what we really love with the rest of our time. If we are ever to be forgiven, John Stott says, we have to repay what we owe to God. And we can't do this because our good works don't repay or make up for our sin because we're supposed to be doing good works anyway. So that doesn't make up for where we've sinned. We can't save ourselves. So who can do it? No one can do it except God himself. No one ought to do it except man. So what's the dilemma? The answer is Christ, the perfect God-man. He was God, he was perfect, he was infinite, the sacrifice is great, but he's made like us so that he could be a like sacrifice and pay for what we've done. The cross is the only place where the loving, forgiving, merciful God is revealed in such a way that we perceive his holiness 
and his love are equally infinite. Holiness and love are equally infinite. But what do we see most of the time? What is God? Love. We don't talk a lot about holiness or justice or wrath. But remember what we said? All of his perfections exist at all times. And so in many ways, we have such an inadequate view of God when we only focus on his love. And then it's even more inadequate because we define love by what we know of love. And our love is nothing like God's love. It's so hindered by our flesh and our sin nature. So his holiness and his love are equally infinite. His justice and his love are simultaneously revealed at the cross. I think that is so powerful. His justice and his love are simultaneously revealed at the cross. In the Old Testament, oh, I already talked about that. Okay, so let's talk about three big words that are really key here that he goes into um, Let's finish 23. We get the first part. We memorize that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it keeps going. There's no period there. It shouldn't be. And are justified or are being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood or propitiation. So we got three big words that y'all looked at this week on your homework. Let's talk about those. We've got justification, which is a legal term. We've got redemption, which is a word of commerce from the marketplace. And then we have atonement or propitiation, which is religious. So three areas of life. He's using illustrations. And so often you see so many different words and illustrations because the fullness of who God is and what he's done has so many aspects that you can't just pick one word and grapple with it. That's why it's so weak to just call God love. Yes, God is love, but he's so much more than just love. And so it's very limiting. And that's why you see there's this and there's this and there's this because you can't fully plumb the depths of just the transcendence and majesty and inf- you know how infinite God is. But to try to make it real, Paul is trying to give some pictures for, the, for us and them especially to hang on to. So we're going to start with the foundation. And I'm going to use the word propitiation instead of atonement, okay? Propitiation, which we don't hear that word much anymore, but it's important for us to look at it, is from the religious or the pagan. Even pagans believed that there was an angry God that needed to be have his wrath satisfied. That's why they would offer sacrifices. In some ways, pagans had one up on us because we kind of do away with this part. There's God's wrath and there has to be payment. We kind of just put that aside. It means to turn away the wrath of the offended God, and it fits perfectly with our last two lessons on God's wrath. Modern man objects to this because all we do is focus on his love, and we diminish his holiness and our sin by just focusing on God's love. And so in pagan religions, men tried to placate God. But in Christianity, God himself turns away his own wrath by becoming the sacrifice. Satisfaction by self-substitution, okay? Um, The word propitiation, and I don't know if I'm saying this right because I don't know Greek, is hilasterion. And in the New Testament, it always refers to God's work, okay? 
In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it says, You were not redeemed with perishable, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, Christ. Not perishable things like silver and gold. I didn't write the whole verse down. But we were redeemed by that. This word is the equivalent in the Old Testament of the mercy seat. Y'all know what the mercy seat was? When God gave Moses the law, at the same time he gave him the form of worship and the directions for the tabernacle, which is a representation in Hebrews, I think, of the heavenly tabernacle. And in the holiest of the parts of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, was the place where God would dwell and there was a golden ark. It had a solid gold lid with these two cherub that, that overtook it. And that was called, the lid was called the mercy seat. And only one day a year could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, which, by the way, was Monday in the Jewish calendar for the Jews. It was Monday was the Day of Atonement. My grandson's birthday was Monday. I'm like, oh, your birthday's on the Day of Atonement. And then I got a great opportunity to tell him what that was. But... That was where you would atone for the blood. And in the ark was the law, the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. And so this one day, the priest would offer, come in and bring blood to offer his own sin. And then he would do an offering for the people and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And the picture was the blood was killed you know, from the lamb. But the picture was God would look down and the blood would cover the law that was broken. And it was interesting that the place where God or there was a covering was called the mercy seat. But that is the picture of propitiation. It's the same thing, okay? Turning away wrath. Now, this is interesting. It's only used four times in the New Testament. However, when we move to the next word, justification, it's used 81 times in the New Testament. So, we have the turning away wrath with the sacrifice, the blood, and then we have justification, and this is the court of law. This is the court of law. Now, to be, to, to be justified is the opposite of being condemned, and let's think about this. When someone breaks a law and they go before the judge and they're condemned, is, is, is the condemnation from the judge, the sentence, is that what they did wrong, or is that him just declaring what they did wrong? When you condemn something, are you actually doing wrong, or are you just declaring that it's wrong? If you condemn something that's wrong, you're just declaring it. You're not, that's not the actual sin. Like if you, if you have a child predator and you see what they did and you condemn that and say they should go to jail, it's not because you're sinning by condemning, you're, you're just and the reason I'm going there is because justification. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Because Christ, through God, God Christ, paid for our sin. God then credits Christ's righteousness to our account. Just like the judge would credit justification to an account. God makes us legally right before him. A lot of times this is called positional righteousness, okay? He gives the righteousness of Christ and credits, and you see that word a lot, credits to our account, all right? How can he do this? 
He does it by his blood. Um, in Romans 5, 9, it says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So we're justified by his blood. His death paid for our sin, and so we get that credited to our account. Okay? And that's what it says here in Romans three twenty-five. It says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Okay, we're justified freely by his grace. The source of our justification is God's grace, and faith is the channel through which we receive it. So this is a truth. The source of our justification is God's grace and what he did through Christ at the cross. And the faith that we have in that is our channel to receive it. It's God declaring that all the demands of the law are fulfilled on behalf of the believing sinner through the righteousness of Christ. The law is fulfilled because you are receiving what Christ did through faith. God imputes Christ's righteousness to our account to our account so we have right standing before him okay so the law reveals god's righteousness which by the way the law is a picture ultimately it's a picture of god he gave the law to reveal himself in his character it's not something outside of himself that he just wants us to do although we are to do it you need to look at god's commands and his law as revealing himself to us it's what's right according to his character so the law reveals god's righteousness and in light of that, man's unrighteousness when we can't obey it fully. But grace reveals God's righteousness and actually gives it to their account. That's the difference with grace, okay? And I know we're, you know, we're trying to get a hold of these things. And listen, none of us are going to have it perfectly. I told my husband, I said, not only work, but like I've been wrestling with some really big things these last few days. And I got to go try to figure out how I'm going to teach it in such a way that it makes sense. Because it. They're big things, ladies. They're, they're the key of everything, and they're so much bigger than us. But, but to try to think on it and wrestle with it is so important. So then we get we got propitiation in the religious area, justification in the legal area, and redemption is the commercial area. It speaks of the marketplace. Um, it had to do with paying a price for something, to buy it out of the marketplace, primarily slaves. Okay? And... We see this powerful picture because we are slaves to sin. Death is the price. Christ paid the price with his blood to buy us from sin and set us free from sin and death. I love this verse, and I'm going to read you the NIV translation because I love it so much. Psalm 119.32 says, I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. That's what happens when he buys us, when he redeems us, that we're under sin. Remember, we saw we were not just sinners, we're under sin. He buys us out of that. He sets us free. And so we are free to run in the path of his commands. We see this powerful picture in the book of Hosea. I read you some verses from the book of Hosea. It's uh, the Minor Prophets. And um, we talked about how he had done everything for Israel. It's a picture Hosea was a man, and God told him to, to marry an unfaithful woman. And she goes out after, her, not after all of her lovers. And then 
even though Hosea had provided for her, she, she equates all her blessings to her lovers. And then God, come, he says, I'm going to come and pursue her. And it's God pursuing Israel. But after you go through this whole thing about God pursuing her, he says, the Lord said to me, this is Hosea. This is after his wife's left him for other people. He's living with other men and, and saying that her lovers have provided for her. The Lord said, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, which is what God calls us when we love other things. It's all through the Old Testament. I, I'll tell you what I told the ladies in Hosea all the time. We're whores. That's a harsh word from the King James, but it's a really real word. In God's eyes, that's how he sees those that he's loved and created when we run after other things and choose other things. But he told Hosea, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. You see how it's the same picture to God? So Hosea says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I told her, you are not to live... You are to live with me many days, and you must not prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. So let's think about ourselves in that. Whenever we sin or we pursue other things or we find our treasure in other things, that's exactly what we're doing. That's what we did when we sinned. And yet God came as Christ and bought us and says, I want you to live with me. And so the question is, how are we responding to that? So when we come to verse 25 to 26, we get to the very foundation of the gospel and the cross and why God did it. So this, this might strike you a little differently, but let's take a look at this. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this, so why did he do it? He did this to demonstrate his justice. Remember, part of his glory, part of his character. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, because he has to have payment for sin, and the one who justifies those who have faith. So he's not only just because of what he did at the cross, he is the justifier because he did it. For centuries, we've seen this dilemma, okay? Um, most people say that God did what he did because he loved us, and that's true. But it's very significant that he said he did this because he left all these sins up in the time of the cross um, not being paid for, okay? We've seen this dilemma. God must uphold his glory, and in his forbearance, he had not punished sins committed beforehand. In other words, everybody didn't just drop dead as soon as they sinned, right? Okay. It would seem that God was forgiving and not holding his holiness and justice, upholding those two parts of his character. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, when David had, had committed adultery with Bathsheba, had, had her husband killed and all of that, and Nathan went and, and confronted him. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. So how did God just take away his sin? How do you think 
Bathsheba's dad felt about that or Uriah's family. Oh, David, you're forgiven. Now, there was consequences with his family. But on the cross, he poured out his wrath on the innocent God-man Jesus. For centuries, God had been doing what Psalm 103.10 says. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He had been passing over them, leaving them unpunished. Now, let's ask this question. When we think about how people question God, how many people wrestle with the fact that God is kind to sinners? In light of what we've seen about his holiness and his justice and how he has to uphold, how many people do you know that, like, I just don't see how God forgives people? Or do we just say, God's love, he's going to forgive me? You see how we're man-centered? How many Christians wrestle with the fact that their own, their own, your own forgiveness is a threat to the righteousness of God? And so that's the need for the cross. And I'm telling you, think about the difference in some, some phrases even in worship songs. There's a beautiful worship song about above all, but there's this phrase that drives me crazy. Um, he took the fall and thought of me above all. No, he wasn't. He was thinking about himself. He was upholding his righteousness. He thought of you, but who's above all? Not me. Do you see how subtle that is? But then you have the song at the cross, for on it my Savior, both bruised and crushed, showed that God is love and God is just. You see, that is biblical. That's a powerful thing. And maybe we sing that and don't really wrestle with it, but I guarantee you, you're going to think about it more now when you sing it. That's the beauty of what I do in worship. I think of in light of what I'm learning and what those lyrics say and, there, and just adds a whole depth to me of my worship time instead of just singing it. So how do we receive this great salvation? From God's wrath and the power of sin and death, it is by faith. Here's the truth. We are justified by faith in the blood of Christ, our substitute. We are justified, right standing, by faith in the blood of Christ, our substitute. So have you received this salvation? Have you been justified by faith in Jesus Christ? God himself, who upheld his own justice, displayed his glory by sacrificially substituting himself in Christ for you to pay the price that you owed him for your own sin. For your own declaration that God is not the supreme treasure and you're going to choose something else. That is what your sin is. Have you done that? And while I do know Christ is separate, Christ is also God. So we don't really talk about the self-substitution of God. And when I read that in the cross of Christ, it added a whole other layer for me to understand what God did. And so that's why I'm speaking that, because... It is just about God himself through Christ, not just this separate being his son that he sent. It was God himself doing it. If you receive this great salvation, do you take it for granted? Are you amazed and overtaken by the great love and mercy and grace of our majestic God? We should not get over that, ladies. We should not get over that. So he just told us that those who have faith in Jesus are justified. Now he's going to expand on that channel of faith. So let me tell you three components of faith. Living faith or true faith? There must be number one, you can put on here components of faith, content. You have to have knowledge of the truth. Your mind has to be involved. Content. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Two, you have to have personal belief. That's where knowledge takes root in your heart and love is born. 
So you have the mind, you have personal belief, the heart, and then third, you have trust or commitment. This is where you surrender and yield yourself to Christ. That is your will. That's where you become a bond slave. The bond slave is the one that had such an amazing master. They didn't want to be set free. They wanted to belong to this master. That's the picture of how we should be walking with the Lord. The natural outworking of this kind of faith is good works or obedience. And 27 through 28 says, let me get over here. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but that on faith. In other words, you can't boast in this because it, it's not anything you're doing or earning. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God, and remember, part of Paul's writing is both to Jews and Gentiles. He's wanting to make these, wanting to tear down the differences and show them their unity in Christ. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jews, and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? In other words, do we make the law not important because that was going to be their argument? He says not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So, we see that the key is this kind of faith. Now, I'm not going to go into the James passage, but when you go to James, I think I gave you 2, 14 through 26, where James is talking about works. Faith without works is dead, and it's works, works, works. I, w- I want to make this, this uh, it, sometimes when there seems to be contradictions in Scripture, you got to understand the context and the person to whom you're speaking. Um, just like I, I may have shared this example that I have twins, a girl and a boy. One in college studied, put so much pressure on herself, straight-A student. The other one enjoyed himself and had a good time. And so I would tell my daughter, you don't need to study so much. You need to quit studying so much because that's the balance she needed. I would tell my son, you need to study more. So which is it? It's both because I was talking to different audiences. That's the situation here. Um, Paul is dealing with the Judaizers, those that were Jews that were Christians but thought that you had to become a Jew first to be a Christian. You got to fulfill the law, you got to eat right, you got to be circumcised. He's addressing them. They're trusting in these outward works, and he's really trying to bring home that it's not anything you can do. In James, he's dealing with antinomianism, which is where, hey, by grace, it doesn't matter what we do. We can do anything, we're saved by grace. So he's dealing with a whole different issue. And he's saying, no, works matter. So just keep that in mind. When there seems to be contradictions, a lot of times that's the case. But we see that there's a universality of God's plan, the gospel. And so he says, we uphold the law. Two ways, Christ perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law, and then he satisfied the demands of the law when he died. So those are two ways that Christ fulfilled and upheld the law. But I want to take a minute, and I want to give you this illustration that I got from John Piper that I thought was really good. So we got a few minutes left, so I'm going to tell you this illustration. How is it that that they're upholding the law? Remember, he's talking to the Jews. Their whole thought process, and we're going to talk about this more next week when he uses Abraham. He's going to use Abraham as an illustration the next chapter and explain this more fully. 
But how does faith uphold the law? So let's do the illustration. Let's suppose you're at a big roller coaster, and you're at the bottom of this 300-foot hill, this roller coaster. You're standing at the bottom. And Moses says, you need to get to the top. And once you get to the top and get in that car, you're going to be able to ride and have the most wonderful life. And so the, the person at the bottom, the Jews, they look at those tracks. The tracks are the law, okay? And they said, okay, that's where I need to get. I'm going to climb these tracks. Because you know how they have this. Were the tracks meant to be climbed as a ladder? No. But self-effort, I'm going to make it. I'm going to do everything I can. But remember, it's 300 feet. So it's an impossibility. It's exhausting. It's overwhelming. But you're trying because your goal is to get up in that cart because that, that's where you know there's going to be enjoyment and life and freedom. And so Paul comes in and he says, don't do that. The Jews say, hey, Moses told us that we have to go up these tracks. Now you're telling us to get off the tracks? You're nullifying the law. And Paul said, no, we're not canceling the law. We're fulfilling it. And Paul points over to this man that's in a crane that has a cable and a harness. He says, let me put this harness on you. And if you trust that man, he is going to lift you up and put you in that car. And it's safer. And so you have a decision. Am I going to keep trying to climb up here on my own? Or am I going to totally trust this man in this crane and put all my hope and weight in him? And so he does. He gets in the crane. That's your faith. You trust him. You get in the crane. He lifts you up, puts you in the car. The force of gravity starts down that first hill. You hit the dip. You start to go up. And then you're thinking, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to do it. But right then you start hearing that click, 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 that power that takes you up the difficult part till you get to the top. And that's the spirit. That's why it was different after Christ set us free. We now have the power we're not trying to climb the track, the spirit, to surge us up the rails, to flow through, and enjoy the freedom. The tracks of the law are not a ladder, but they're a pathway to ride once the spirit comes and help you enjoy the fullness of all that God has. And so Paul's going to address this concept more in chapter 6 through 8 and also in Romans 8, 2 through 4. And I'm going to read just that part because he introduces things and then later he goes through and talks more about it. So in Romans 8, 2 through 4, he's going to say, and this will be our last chapter this semester when we get to 8. He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but the spirit. So you get positional righteousness before God, and then you get the spirit to give you the power of what I would call practical righteousness, living on the tracks in freedom and joy and the goodness that comes from following God's path versus trying to just go a different way. So let's conclude by some application questions for you to just think about. In what are you trusting or in whom are you trusting for your salvation? Jesus alone, Jesus and good works are just good works. In what or whom are you trusting for your salvation? What kind of faith do you possess? Does it have all three of those components? 
mind, heart, and will. What kind of faith do you possess? Does it have all three of those components? Involve the mind, the truth, the heart, and the will. How are you seeing yourself differently through this study? How are you seeing yourself differently through this study? Has your love and devotion for God increased as you've pondered the depth of your sin and the glory of his many perfections demonstrated at the cross? Has your love and devotion for God increased as you've pondered the depth of your sin and the glory of his many perfections demonstrated at the cross? Yes. Has your love and devotion for God increased as you've pondered the depth of your sin and the glory of his many perfections demonstrated at the cross? And finally, what needs to change in your life in light of all that God's showing you? What needs to change in your life in light of all that God is showing you? Let's pray. God, God, we do stand in awe of your holiness, of your righteousness, of your love and your mercy and your goodness and how you chose to substitute yourself for us, Lord. God, forgive us where our hearts go astray. Forgive us that we do not treat your glory as the greatest treasure of our lives. Help us, God, help us to do that in small ways and in big ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.